Donald said we were not allowed to sing that like Presbyterians. His love never fails. He's good. He is good. Let's turn to Jude, verses 14 and 16 this morning. Now, before we read this, I want to remind you about God's economy of words. He does not waste words in Scripture, although sometimes it seems like uh, the authors repeat themselves a couple times, uh, nor does he use more words than are necessary in Scripture. And, and the perfect illustration of this is what happens when, um, uh, at, at the crucifixion of Christ, when he gives up his spirit, it says, and the tombs opened and the dead walked about. Now, if... I really would like a little bit more explanation about that, but Scripture doesn't give any more. It just states it as a fact, okay, and then moves on. So when it says it's a fact, we must assume that, well, everybody saw it, so why do I have to explain it anymore, okay? But we get it after so many years, and I think, well, what else happened? Did they, did they die again? How long were they up? We don't know. Scripture says... And by not relating any more about it, it shows that it's not important after the fact other than it has happened. Obviously, in its brevity, people knew it because the author did not have to explain it any further. So I, I say all that. When we get to Jude, there seems to be repetition. Okay? There seems to be, again and again, he goes after these false teachers and he explains their character, he explains their actions, and sometimes he repeats himself, it seems, on a regular basis. So this is the introduction, to, so to speak, to these three verses as to why they are here, in a sense, again, because they are so very important. Okay? We think, well, I, I want to know more about the graves opening and the, and the dead walking, but we don't get any more about that. But we get a repetition of the character and the quality of the lives of false teachers. So if you're able, would you stand with me, and I will read our verses for this morning. Our Heavenly Father, come upon us with your Holy Spirit, that we might understand that our eyes would be open and, and that we would see the importance of recognizing the character and the lives of false teachers, recognizing their teaching to be an heir, and clinging to the things of Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So Jude, verses 14, 15, and 16. And about these also, Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now remember the... The false teachers, he has said previously, and I'll just go through the, the list of what he has said. 
They were ungodly. They pervert grace. They deny Christ. They rely upon their dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme the angels. They blaspheme what they don't understand. They are unreasoned animals. They walk in the way of Cain, abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. They perish in Korah's rebellion. They feast without fear. They look after only themselves, are like waterless clouds, hidden reefs, fruitless trees, wild waves, wandering stars. And that's only in 13 verses. Okay, So I hope we grasp this, that these guys are really bad. Okay, If I had to sum up the first 13 verses of Jude, false teachers are really bad. Okay, There's nothing good about them here, and their lives show their false theology. They are they do ge- deeds of ungodliness. They are grumblers, malcontents, following after their own sinful desires, loud mouth boasters. This is all out of really 16. And they show favoritism to gain advantage. So I, I'm pretty sure that Jude wants us to understand if somebody lies to you, cheats you, hides the truth from you, or some way falsely represents the truth, they are a bad person. Okay. Now, hardly ever do we want to look at somebody and just say, well, that, you know, that, that's just a bad person. We like to give them the benefit of the doubt. But um, from that famous uh, theologian from Star Trek, Scotty, the engineer, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice. No, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. If somebody's going to lie to me, and do it more than once, and I still think of them as a good person or somebody that I can trust, it becomes an issue for me. Okay? And Jude says, you know, when these people begin to do these things and to demonstrate their, their apostate views in these ways, you may want to think of them in a, in a, in a different light. Okay? Their character is flawed, and it is flawed right to the core of their being. I don't think he's making any allowances here for, if, if we come to our world, for business or politics. And those who want to blow their own horn to demonstrate their, their worthiness of your support or anything like that. Or those who need to schmooze with wealthy people just to get their money so that they can go do their thing. Their, their, you know, their work in the crowd so that they can have their agenda. Or to cozy up to powerful but unseemly people to help get their agenda through. I don't think he's making any allowances for that. Jude tells us that we will know their hearts and therefore their teachings are bad because their actions are bad. Their actions are bad. We cannot dismiss them as not telling the truth and and, and accepting that as saying, well, you know, everybody lies. Everybody lies. If you went into all your conversations and all your relationships assuming that the person was going to lie to you, you will, you know, we can't have that. You must assume that we are telling the truth to one another, especially within the body of Christ. And we can't accept compromises on the truth saying, well, you know, this is a multicultural society and, and it's, it's just not nice to say that your way is the only way or that your view is right. And I'm not saying that Randy's view is right. I'm saying that God's view is right. God's view is correct. When he says this is what we should do, then we should do it because he has said it, and his character is right and correct and just. It is not sullied by sin. I mean, there's no selfishness in the Lord. There's only perfect righteousness there. 
And I, I this is a, a personal issue. I grow more and more disheartened by public figures that I hear say things that have some truth in them, but not all the truth in them. And they come out and say these things with the partial truth as if it's the whole truth. They are misrepresenting themselves. Spin, contextual relativism is not truth. So according to what Jude is saying, we should take the words of people who do that in the same way as Jude says these false teachers. They're, reflected, they're reflecting their character. They're reflections of their characters. So let's look closely at what Jude has to say this morning. Verse 14. He says, About these also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly. And we'll get to the 15 in just a moment. So Jude is quoting from a book called First Enoch. Now, if you remember, Enoch was the seventh in the line from Adam, um, and, and that's why he says the seventh generation. So uh, the thing that we know in particular about Enoch is that he didn't die. He walked with God and was not. So apparently he was so close with the Lord, so intimate in that relationship and such a godly individual that he was taken. And the only other person who did not die uh, was the prophet who was taken up in the chariot, Elijah. So uh, we get this idea that Enoch is a pretty good guy. Um, uh, but unfortunately, he did not write the book of First Enoch because Enoch was prior to the flood. So what we have here is known as a pseudopigraphical book. That means a book that was written in somebody else's name. Okay? And it's not uncommon to have these in ancient writings. Um, now, why does Jude refer or even quote from this book, First Enoch? Well, First Enoch was pretty pretty well known in the first and second centuries. Uh, it was found among, uh, some fragments of it was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now the Dead Sea Scrolls are a pretty famous document and uh, there was a young boy who was chasing his goats uh, down by the Dead Sea and, and he thought one of the goats went into a cave. This is back in the 20s or 30s I believe. And he was afraid to go into the cave so he took a rock and he threw it into the cave hoping to scare the goat to come out. But he threw the rock in and he hit a clay pot and heard it break. And so he knew enough to think that that wasn't what normally happened. So he went and told his dad. Dad told others. Uh, sooner before you know it, archaeologists uh, descend upon this place and found this treasure trove of previously undiscovered scrolls and are named the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, first Enoch is alluded to in the book of Matthew, in Luke, in Romans, in Hebrews, in Revelation. Uh, the same idea as is laid out here about Christ returning and coming with his, uh, his angels is laid out for us in Zechariah, Isaiah, Psalms, Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament. Uh, so this is not anything that is out of the ordinary. Okay? Now, this does not mean that First Enoch was inspired or should be included in Scripture. It is not for a variety of reasons, which, which we won't deal with, but... It is one of those books that was known and referred to, so at least in the portion that Jude refers to or quotes, it is correct. Now we see this back, remember the argument of Michael and Satan over the body of Moses. 
okay, from the Testament of Moses. That would have been another type of the same book, pseudopigraphical book um, that was written. Others uh, written about those times, the Ascension of Isaiah, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, uh, the Sibylline Oracles, the Fourth Book of Esther, the Ezra, the Pastor of Hermes. These were all types of books that are uh, known to have existed but were not what we call canonical. They did not go into Scripture uh, for various reasons. Okay? The Book of Enoch was found in uh, pretty much in its entirety in 1773 uh, in an Ethiopic Bible uh, by uh, a guy who was just putzing around in, in somebody's library, and in the back was this container, and he opened it, and there was this Ethiopic Bible and the first Book of First Enoch. Basically, Enoch is a good book in the sense it's, it highlights divine providence, that the hand of God is at work in all things. And it also talks about the retribution that will come upon sinners who do not repent. Okay? Now, there are other things in it that we won't go into, but you get the idea. So Jude is referencing this book of Enoch here as he quotes in 14 and 15. Um, there is universal judgment to come. The scope of the judgment is upon all those who are outside of Christ. Okay? Who are outside of Christ. Now, Enoch, we learn from verse 14 that Enoch was a prophet. And he was the first prophet. And about these also, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. Now, what did he prophesy about? Did he prophesy about the coming of Christ? Well, he did, but he didn't prophesy about the first coming of Christ. He prophesied about the second coming of Christ. So here you have the seventh guy from Adam talking about a prophecy about the second coming of Christ. And Christ has not even come the first time. He doesn't talk about the first coming of Christ. Now, God does mention, uh, he shall, uh, you bruise his heel, bruise his head. There is this, this allusion to Christ who is coming, etc., but the first prophecy of men really is about the second coming of Christ. Now, how does Jude know about these things? Okay. How does Jude understand that this is, this is Enoch? I mean, we don't have anything written from Enoch. There's no evidence that, that Enoch put anything down. There are certain people in Scripture that get inspiration, and I don't want to say above and beyond the others who get inspiration from the Holy Spirit, but they get knowledge to things that can only be known by the Lord and are therefore communicated like this, okay? Enoch prophesied. We also see Moses. Moses wrote the history of creation. Did he just sit down one day and felt particularly creative and illustrative and decided to write, I'm going to write the history of the world, and this is how I think it came about. No, the Lord told him this is how it came about. We see Paul in 2 Timothy mention the names of the Egyptian magicians who did battle, so to speak, with Moses. You'll notice those names are not mentioned in the Old Testament. They were given to Paul by the Lord. We see Peter talk about Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Noah is not listed that way in Genesis. He's listed that way in the writings of Peter. How did Peter know that he was a preacher of righteousness? Because the Lord told him these things. So Moses and Paul and Peter wrote these things that only God could have revealed to them in the same way that Jude writes something that only the Lord could have revealed to him. And that is this prophecy 
that Enoch prophesied about the second coming of Christ. It's interesting that the last prophecy in Scripture, Revelation 22, is about the second coming of Christ. Okay? So really the first prophecy for man and the, and the last prophecy are all about the second coming of Christ. Now, look at verse 14. And right there, beginning in the prophecy, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of holy ones. What do you notice about the word came? Past tense. But isn't this a prophecy about the future? Yes, but it's already listed as the past tense, as if it has already happened. Okay, if it has already came about. Now, theologians, we have our own language, and we like to explain things in ways that that help us understand We explain it this way. God is in the eternal present. God is in the eternal present. There is no past for the Lord. There is no future for the Lord. Remember, time was created for our benefit. The Lord doesn't need time. He is always present for all eternity. So we see this type of language repeated in several places in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 says that God has already raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That has not happened yet. But it's in the future, but it's spoken of as if it's already happened as in the past. Romans 8, we have been glorified. Okay, those who have been predestined and chosen and justified, glorified. Glorification doesn't happen till down the road for us, but it is spoken of as if it already has happened. First Thessalonians 4, the same thing. Things that are yet to happen are spoken of as already taking place because of God's, as we, we explain it, his eternal, he's in the eternal present. Whenever time is, well, I, I, I can't explain it because I'm bound by time. God is not, Okay. So when he says it's already happened, we can take it to the bank. So he says, the Lord came with many thousands of holy ones, almost as if he's on this side of the second coming of Christ looking back at it. But Enoch is already, he's just back here at creation looking up saying, well, it's going to happen in the future, but it's a given. It is a given. Okay. Well, Enoch's uh, prophecy uh, let's look at, uh, just briefly, the identity of the one who is going to come. It's the Lord who will come, okay? And who will be coming with him? Well, it says thousands of holy ones. Thousands of holy ones. Now, who are the holy ones? Well, Matthew chapter 25, the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the angels with him. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. So besides the angels, the saints will come back with Christ. Okay? So this is not, you know, the return of Christ. Let's, you know, does anybody remember the book 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988? Does any, anybody remember that? It, it, you know, I love it. it You've got to have reasons and you've got to have lists. And it just happened that the guy came up with 88 because it was to return in 1988. Well, he didn't come back. And there are some people who think the Lord has already returned and he's kind of in hiding and yet to reveal himself. That's just not what Scripture says. You cannot miss it. I mean, if he's going to come, he's going to come with thousands. It literally says myriad of angels and the saints. It's going to be a big thing. And you don't want to miss it. Now you say, well, how could I miss it, Rand? 
Well, you miss it one, one way, and that's by not belonging to him. Okay? You're going to miss out on the good stuff if you don't belong to him. And I don't want to minimize the return of Christ as so simply saying the good stuff, but the good stuff is to be in Christ and to be one of those who are looking and waiting for his return because his return will be when? Soon. Thank you. <laughs> I always ask Joyce. She knows. She knows the answer to that question. Why is the Lord coming? The Lord came the first time as the Savior. The second time he comes as the judge. Okay? And the scope of the judgment is universal. Remember Revelation chapter 6. It says the people will cry out. They will beg for rocks and to mountains that for have those things fall upon them that they might escape the coming judgment of the returning Christ. It will be the return of Christ in judgment. The Lord came once in humility to bring salvation. The next time he comes with power and authority to judge all. And those who are outside of Christ will not be pleased. I can guarantee that. So the result of his coming, the result of the Lord's coming, will be a tremendous conviction upon the lives of the ungodly. Okay. I don't even have to deal with the result of his coming for those who are in Christ. It'll be glorious. It'll be fantastic. But for those who are outside of Christ, this tremendous verdict of guilt will fall upon them. At the judgment, Jesus will say, depart from me, you who are cursed into everlasting judgment. Okay? Enoch's prophecy vividly finds unbelievers guilty for their ungodly character, their attitudes, their actions, their words, this, this is particularly clear on the apostates, the false teachers, who have purposely taught wrong things about God to lead people away. So let's deal with the character of these false teachers here as he lays it out for us in uh, 15 and 16. They are grumblers, fault finders. They follow after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly. They flatter people so that they can gain success for themselves. And he says God's going to judge them. Okay, he is going to judge them, the false teachers. Now, isn't it interesting that Jude calls upon and calls, in a sense, down the judgment of God on the false teachers, and one of the clear things that false teachers usually teach is that there's no judgment of God. Okay? Because if there's no judgment of God, we've all got this happy ending. Now, if you're a universalist in the view that everybody's going to heaven, then obviously there's no judgment because why would God judge if everybody's going to be with him? Okay? So a false teacher often does not teach that there is judgment. And Jude says there's going to be judgment on these guys that don't teach judgment. Okay? So let's face it. Judgment's not much fun, is it? I mean, it just doesn't sell well. Uh, you, you know, okay, I can preach on judgment every once in a while, but let's not spend too much time on it because it really is depressing. Uh, the Lord's going to come. There's going to be this, this great gnashing of teeth. We want to talk about... We want to talk about grace. We want to talk about happy things. We want to talk about the Lord empowering us to, to do certain things. But there will always be judgment, and you have to be ready because there's no second chance. Okay, the chance comes now. The opportunity is now while we're here. Today is the day of salvation. That's what it says. It doesn't say put it off till tomorrow. Okay, well, you never know. Well, you have tomorrow. When judgment comes, you have to be ready. Christ will not accept some human explanation like, uh, well, you know, Lord, I really, there you are. 
It's the judgment. Christ has returned and you stand before him and you go, no, Lord, I, I really wasn't sure all my life about this stuff. I heard people talk about it and, and you know, but, but the people that go to church, well, they're not perfect. I see a lot of hypocrites there and, and um, you know, so I really wasn't sure. But now that I see you right in front of me, I am ready to believe. And what will the Lord say? Depart from me. You're toast. I don't say that's. A, I don't think that's a theological term, but that's what he means. Okay, you're done. It's too late. You've had your opportunity. When Scripture said, "Believe today," remember, gee, Jesus does not encourage belief. He does not beg people to believe. He does not conjole people. He commands. When he says, "Believe," when the Scripture says, "Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ," it's a command. It's it's not really a request. This is the day of salvation. It's not tomorrow. It is today. You know, I think, how many people have, do we know that have died unexpectedly? Okay, I think of, of John Banks. And, and, you know, John, great guy, man of integrity and, and honor and a believer. He was coming back from New York. It wasn't as if he had planned to, to die on this trip. But the Lord came and said, John, today you're going to be with me where? In paradise. Okay, this is the day where you're going to be with me. He was ready. Okay? He didn't have to say to the Lord, well, now I'm ready to believe, now that I see you face to face. No, John was ready. Okay? We don't know when it will come. We have to be ready for it. So, let's look at verse 15. And we're going to count as we go through verse 15. Because this is important. This hand will be all. This hand will be ungodly. Hmm. To execute judgment upon all... And to convince all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners do. So, judgment will fall upon whom? Ungodly. And how much of the ungodly will, will judgment fall upon? All of the ungodly. Now, you think, well, why does he repeat all and ungodly so often? I go back to the, the thing I talked about in the beginning. God uses an economy of words. When he repeats something, it is very, very important. You cannot leave this verse with an understanding that, no, judgment won't fall on everybody. It's not going to fall on all of the ungodly. Certainly, some who have, who have um, tried their best will avoid judgment. That's not what it says. All the ungodly. All the ungodly. For all the ungodly deeds. Everybody. John Bengal, who is a, uh, a theologian from years ago, wrote, A sinner is bad. One who sins without fear is worse. Okay? You have no fear of the Lord. If you go about your life not caring, not even contemplating that there might be judgment upon all the ungodly, he says it's even worse. Even worse. So let's look at their character, and, and, and we could spend a lot of time on, on how he describes it. I'm just going to really reduce it and summarize it into these four uh, categories, murmurers, complainers, deceivers, and flatterers, and just give us the, 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 the short version of all this. So he calls them murmurers. Now, murmuring is, is this. 
Um, murmur is, is a, is, has a lot of precedence in Scripture, mostly from the Old Testament, mostly from the people in um, the Israelites as they wandered in the desert. Uh, a murmur is somebody who hears something, and then they turn to their friend and go, I really don't think that's right. I think this guy's crazy. Uh, what do you think we should do? Okay. That's what a murmurer does. He kind of spreads it. It's underneath all of what's going on. So we see this happening in the wilderness as Moses would say things and then they'd go back to their tents and then they'd talk and murmur and, and uh, be quite unhappy about what's going on. In John chapter 6, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread, the bread that's come down from heaven. Okay? So they're going, oh, this Jesus guy is pretty crazy. He says he's bread. Can't believe that. Okay, this is murmuring, murmuring. First they murmur, then they fell into apostasy, okay, being discontent with God's truth. Next they became complainers. Murmurers are complainers who aren't shy about it, okay? So it would be as if I said something on Sunday morning and you turn to your person next to you and say, Randy's really lost his his marbles today, I can't believe this. Um, it would be something like, I would say something and you'd go, are you kidding me? Jenkins, what are you talking about today? That, that's not in scripture. Where'd you come up with that? That would be complaining. Okay, Murmuring, moving to um, a dissatisfaction with what you hear in a very ver- verbal and vocal way. Okay, And it's a, a exemplified in scripture in a variety of ways. The angels, the fallen angels, complained about their habitation. Israel is dissatisfied in the wilderness. Korah, dissatisfied with uh, the priesthood and Moses as the mediator. Cain, dissatisfied with God's plan. Balaam, dissatisfied that he wasn't getting paid to, uh, to, to prophesy. Apostate teachers, murmuring, complaining, falling into open rebellion. It's just this progress. It goes like this, okay? Apostates, those who complain, don't understand what Paul tells to Timothy about godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment. It's about a heart that is right before the Lord, a heart that is peaceful before the Lord. No matter what the storm is around us, godliness with contentment this, this, this calmness that we have. It's the peace that passes all understanding. The third category would be deceivers, apostates. Uh, they speak with uh, what verse 16 says is, um, it says arrogantly out of Peter, the, the same kind of reference is with great swelling words. Great swelling words. Um, you remember they were uh, waterless clouds, uh, big hat, no cattle. It was that kind of thing. Uh, I had uh, one of my preaching professors at, at seminary was this tall man. He was about 6'4", very distinguished, this, this great uh, gray beard. And his voice was probably an octave lower, it seemed, than mine. So when he got up to preach, he would come and he would speak like this. And this, this resonance. And I, the first time I heard him preach, I thought, man... Where can I get a voice like that? What, if I could just get a Scottish accent and a voice like that, I'd really be good. But at the end of the message, I looked at my buddy who was sitting there, and I said, what did the guy say? And he said, I, I, I don't know. He was, a, he was an empty hat. He had this great voice in this presence, but there was no meat. There was nothing you could take away. There was nothing even really to, that you could dig into the word with. But it was all deep and rich and powerful, but it was empty, 
big swelling words. Nothing of importance was said, though. This is one of the characteristics of the false teachers. They are deceivers. Man, you walk out and you go, that was great. And then on the car on the way home, you go, what did he say? Well, I don't know. Wasn't it good? I don't know what he said. No content. And then finally, flatterers. Flatterers. Verse 16, they flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And this is a personal advantage that Jude is referring to here. Uh, a personal advantage. They say what people want to hear. They acquiesce to popular opinion in order to gain favor. Okay, now, um, you notice the Old Testament prophets never had this problem. Uh, they were very, never very popular, okay, because they were always talking about, well, you know, you all are disobedient, and unless you get it together, the Lord is going to bring judgment. Or they would come and say, it's too late, you've had the chance, the Lord is going to bring judgment no matter what. Okay, Amos did not get invited to a lot of parties. Okay, he was not very popular at all. <sighs> See, what makes the teaching of the Word of God difficult is that sometimes you have to say things that are hard and things that people don't like. Uh, and it is inevitable that people will be offended by statements within Scripture. The gospel is inherently divisive. Okay? It's as sharp as a two-edged sword. Okay? It divides father and son, brother and brother, husband and wife. It just does this. People's lives are changed and they are, are now different. But those whose lives have not been changed, who have not uh, received the, the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't understand and often they will, will be angry at those whose lives are changed. It is divisive within families. So, you know, sometimes we think, well, let's just stick to the happy stuff. Okay, the stuff that will unite everybody and draw everybody together. But I've been here long enough. I'd rather you leave here angry with me, angry with God about what God says, than to go home not knowing. To go home and say, well, that was great, but what did he say? I don't know. Rather we hear the harsh things, the things of warning, and that's what Jude says. This is what these people look like. This is what they sound like. Their words are empty. They will be self-serving in their flattery. So really today it's very simple. The lives of false teachers will give them away. Their teaching will give them away. It may sound good, but it is empty. And what happens is judgment comes. So be ready today. Don't say, ah, oh, gee, well, Randy's saying it's starting to make sense to me, but, but I, you know, I just can't. I'm just not ready to do this. I'm not ready to believe. If the Lord has moved in your heart, if you understand to some degree that there is judgment to come, and the only way to avoid that judgment is faith in Jesus Christ, that he has given his life, that the penalty of your sin might be atoned for, then today is the day of salvation. So let's pray. Lord, your word can be very hard. It can be very difficult. But yet, these are the words of life. Who else has the words of life? It is here that we find that we are separated from you because of our sin. 
but it is also here that we find you have extended yourself through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And it is his perfect, sinless life and death which pays the price for us. We could never be good enough. We could never work our way. We could never jump through enough hoops to be right with you. You have acted and you have made the way and you now draw us unto yourself. Lord, this is a glorious truth and this is something that we don't deserve. We cannot earn and and how can we even fathom such love? But once that love is placed within our hearts, once your spirit has open our eyes to our sin and our need for salvation, and we have received the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, the great thing is then we can begin to love in the same way. Then we can begin to demonstrate the things of Christ in humility and graciousness. That we might stand on what is right in, in an uncompromising manner. And demonstrate the things of Christ to those who were like we used to be outside of Christ. So Heavenly Father, come upon us today. There be those today here whose eyes are not open to the things of Christ. Move in their heart that today would be the day of their salvation. That whatever amount that they understand about you, you would use to draw them unto yourself that they might know the joy, the joy of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.